Good morning, church. My name is Mark. Um, I haven't preached since Christmas, so those of you that have joined uh, our church this year, you don't know that I, I'm one of the preaching team. It's a privilege for me to be in the pulpit this morning. I have a worship song up on this pulpit that I might end up preaching by accident and a name badge, so now it's clear. Um, these are exciting times in our church. Even this morning, while the rain's pouring and I'm wondering, will people like to stay home in the comfort of their homes? We're looking at a full house. But more than that, there's hunger in the room. There's been four weeks. And I'm coming to God's word this morning. I hope you are too excited, wanting to hear him speak. I'm expecting him to speak. There's life here. My prayer is that God will come and have his way amongst us. We are continuing in the Gospel of Mark, and things are heating up between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus is finally in Jerusalem. He spent three years circling, going to peripheral places, but he's always been heading towards the, the capital, the center, and we are just days away from the crucifixion. The leaders are questioning his authority. And last week we saw Jesus move from being willing to answer their questions with clarity to speaking to them in parables because they were not prepared to climb down from spiritual pride. But today they return en masse, enemies in arms, united behind this purpose of trapping Jesus in his words. They have put their collective intellect together, the greatest intellect they can muster. And let's read the text together and see what happens. There's a lot of text. I hopefully will finish reading it before 9.30. Let's go. It's Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall, will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. 
And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. It's a long text, and you'll see that there's four questions that come out of this text. Three of them are from Jesus' opponents. One is from Jesus himself. And Jesus is going to use each one as an opportunity to teach us something important about following him. The first question to come is a clever question. It comes from an unlikely alliance. The Pharisees and Herodians were polar opposites. They disagreed on just about everything. The Pharisees were the epitome of legalism and religion. And the Herodians were as worldly as you could get. They were supporters of Herod, the Roman leader of the territory. The Pharisees despised the Roman oppression. They despised Herod's leadership over them. The Herodians were dedicated to Herod as the Roman leader. But in Jesus, they have a mutual enemy. And the old adage, if I'm saying that correctly, I always say it that way and wonder if I'm saying it right. You can tell me at the end. But the old adage of, that says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
holds true here. In Jesus, they have an enemy, and they come together and form a brilliant question. It is cleverly designed to fork Jesus between two negative outcomes. In chess, a fork is when you place your knight, and it can take the, the king, and it can take something else that's precious, and the person's forced to move their king, and you can take the other outcome. There's no good outcome when you're in a fork. And this question is designed to fork Jesus between two negative outcomes that he must choose, the one he wants. They start with flattery. Did you notice that? Oh, Jesus, you're such a good teacher. Jesus, you're so true. Flattery is the opposite of gossip. Gossip's when you say something behind someone's back that you wouldn't say to their face. Flatteries, when you say something to someone's face, you won't say it behind their back. Not once do they ever say, behind Jesus' back, you're a good teacher. But to his face, they lie to him. And they tell him, you are a good teacher. Everything you say is true. You truly teach the way of God. They don't believe a word of this. And the great irony is that everything they say is true, even though they don't believe it. They are trying to batter Jesus up before delivering a knockout blow. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay or should we not? It's a brilliantly worded question. And they are sure they have him. The crowd despised Roman oppression. If Jesus answers, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, the crowd will turn from him. He holds them in his hands at this moment. And the only reason the leaders are not pursuing Jesus right now is because they are afraid of the crowd and what they will think of, uh, of an attack or an assault on Jesus. But if Jesus will say these words, which they want him to say, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, he loses favor with the crowd. That's what their agenda is all about. If Jesus says, no, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Herodians are waiting to hand him over to the Roman government. Either way, the agenda is advanced, and Jesus is in trouble. Jesus asks for a coin. And this coin, the denarius, it had Caesar's image uh, put on it. And underneath, it had a phrase written that called Caesar divine. He was a div uh, it was a token to show his divinity. This was why the uh, Jews hated the Romans so much because they felt like they were being forced to follow other gods. And even in the use, use of this money, they were uh, affirming this uh, godly Roman empire. They also had to pay a tax just for being in submission to Rome. So Rome is oppressing you, and now you've got to pay a tax, which is a denarius, to say, we belong to you. And the Jews had already revolted in um, AD 3. 
somewhere, very, I don't know if it's BC3 or AD3, but very close to Jesus' birth, there is a revolt to try and overturn the Roman oppression. And now, 70 years, 40 years from this time, there will be another revolt that will lead to the destruction of the temple. The Jews do not want to be under Roman oppression. They do not want to have to pay this tax. They do not want to have to look at Caesar's inscription, his face, and have to see him constantly declaring himself as God. Jesus asks for this coin. Notice he doesn't touch it. He says, show me the coin. And they show it to him. And he says, whose image is on the coin? And they say, Caesar's image is on the coin. And Jesus gives this brilliant answer that is famous. I'm sure you've heard it many times before today. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And give to God that which is God's. It's a brilliant answer. It's an even better answer than the question itself. J.C. Ryle says this about it. He says, in short, he bids the proud Pharisee not to refuse his Jews to Caesar, and he bids the worldly Herodian not to refuse his Jews to God. But there's another reason why this is brilliant from Jesus. In this answer, Jesus separates what is seen as one realm into two different realms. Jesus is separating religion and politics. And he's saying, you can do something here in this realm without it meaning anything over here in this one. Before this time, the king had a lot of say over religion. Nebuchadnezzar famously uh, declared that the whole land will worship uh, Yahweh. As king, he had the authority to make that call as a, a political leader on those who believe in different religions. Here Jesus does something new, something we believe in today, but he's the first one to do it. He puts religion here and he puts politics over here. He separates them into two realms in his answer. Just because you're paying taxes to Caesar doesn't mean you are not worshipping God. The coin belongs to Caesar. He minted it. And in the end of the day, it's just money. And Tertullian was the first one to say, he is an early church father, that as the coin bears the image of Caesar and so belongs to him, so you and I bear the image of God. And so we belong to him. In one very brilliant answer, Jesus is saying, you can give the small little thing to Caesar, but everything is God's. All of you, your whole being belongs to God. And no wonder they marvel at him. Because they're trying to trap him. This is an insincere question. They are not trying to get any uh, answers to help them live their lives. They're trying to get Jesus into trouble, and they can't. It's a brilliant answer, and it not only gets Jesus out of a trap, that would just be a neutral way, but it calls them to wholehearted living for God. Brilliant. And the challenge for the hearers is the same challenge for us. Caesar does not win this exchange. All he gets is money with his image printed on it. Even though that very coin claims divinity and Caesar is hoping for something more than money, it's not his. Because only God is God and everything belongs to God. While the Pharisees and Herodians are licking their wounds. Up step the Sadducees for the second question. And this question is not a clever question. 
This is a really d dumb question. And I don't understand this group of people at all. I can uh, empathize with a Pharisee. I am Pharisaical by nature. I want to follow rules. My son is just like me. You know what? We go to the beach, sewage spill, and the sign's up there. It says, don't swim. But we've promised our kids that they're going to swim. Those of you with little children know the dilemma we're in. So now we're at the beach. We realize, I don't know if this is safe to swim. By the way, there's lots of people swimming. Lots of rule breakers out there loving the, you know, swimming in the, the sewage. And, and I come up with an idea. And I say, love, remember, Sebastian's a rule follower. And he can read. It's brilliant. Sebastian, what does that sign say? It says, don't swim, Dad. Oh, what should we do, Sebastian? But Dad, why are those people swimming? I don't know, Sebastian. Maybe they can't read, Dad. <laughs> Maybe not, Sebastian. Maybe the sign's old, Dad. Maybe it is, Sebastian. What do you think we should do? I don't think we should take the chance. Let's go to the park. He is a rule follower, just like his dad. I can relate to these Pharisees. I often look at them and hear them and go, wow, I think I might have been one of them on that day. I can relate even to a Herodian, someone who is looking at this life and going, this is all there is, so I'm going to enjoy it. I don't, I don't think they're right, but I can understand their logic. I'm hoping in something unseen. They don't hope for that, so they're making the most of what they see. And now we come to this group, aptly named Sadducees. They only believe in the first five books of the Bible. Only the first five books. They're not the most interesting books if you've read your whole Bible. One of my favorites in there is Leviticus. They devote themselves to Leviticus. Think about this. They devote their whole lives to Leviticus. Their whole lives. This law and this law and this law and this law and this law. And then in the end, they believe you die and there's no resurrection. Why would you live your life that way? Rather be a Herodian. If all there is in this life is this world, then make the most of this world. But this incredibly sad bunch, excuse the pun, are willing to devote their lives to five books, very boring, and then die to nothing. Sad, you see indeed. They are mortal enemies of the Pharisees and momentary allies. They have an argument, a trump card. This is not the first time they have said this. Every Pharisee is well versed with this challenge. I can almost see the Pharisees rolling their eyes as the Sadducees come forward to deliver their argument again. Jesus won't have an answer to this. None of the Pharisees have ever had an answer to this. There can't be a resurrection because what's going to happen if someone marries lots of different people in their lifetime? Who are they going to be married to in heaven? And they come up with this case study which is so unlikely that actuaries are still trying to figure out what is the mathematical probability of this thing happening. But they say, there's a woman and she marries a guy and he dies. And then she marries another guy, and he dies. And then she marries another guy, and he dies. And at some point, you've got to start asking yourself, what is wrong with this woman? <laughs> but the, the, Pharise, the, the Sadducees press on. 
another one does, and another one does, and another one does. It's like the song, can you almost hear it now? And another one bites the dust. Seven husbands dead. Finally, she dies, and the whole land breathes a sigh of relief. <laughs> Jesus, this is the silliest question, but Jesus, whose wife will she be in heaven? And Jesus gives them even though it's a silly question, we're about to get a really good answer. And he says to them, you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. When they rise. What a powerful phrase from the Son of God, the one who's been to heaven and knows the future. When they rise. This is not up for debate. This is not just a pharisaical idea. God will do it. Jesus is the first to be resurrected to a glorified body, and the same will happen to all who trust in him. The problem of who you will be married to in heaven, if you've had multiple spouses, is a problem of assumption. It's assuming that the way we live here, with regards to marriage, is the way we're going to live up there. I attended a funeral, Roman Catholic funeral. Family member was not saved, lived very worldly life, had two wives, and no, he didn't marry a second wife. His ex-wife, who was still part of the family, was with her second husband. Comes to the funeral out of respect. And the pastor stands up there in front of all of us. Most of my family are unsaved. I think I was the only one saved at that point. And the pastor looks at the ex-wife and says to him, when, when you die, Trevor will be married to you in heaven. I had lots of problems with that. Trevor's not even saved. He's not going to be in heaven first. Secondly, this poor woman's married to this guy who she loves, and she doesn't like him anymore. And now you're saying because it was a, a thing of primary, the first one you do is the one you with forever. There's an assumption here that because we're married here and we've married to one person here, it's going to be like that in heaven. And so if you've married multiple people, what's going to happen? And Jesus answers it by saying, it does not work like that in heaven. Jesus says that with regards to marriage, this is not the case. I think a lot of this life is similar to heaven. I do think that. I think we're going to work in heaven. I think a lot of the things we enjoy here, we're going to enjoy on a greater level in heaven. But when it comes to marriage, Scripture is very quiet. And the one time Jesus says something about it, he says it will not be as it is here. I respect that answer. I respect the mystery involved in that. What Jesus is saying, though, which I'm taking, is you are going to be resurrected. You have an eternal hope. These Sadducees only had hope for this lifetime. The Herodians only had hope for this lifetime. But Jesus is saying to you and me, you have an everlasting hope in eternity. The first answer is give everything you have to God. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. Give all you have to him. The second answer is you have a great hope for eternity. You will be with me forever. 
the Sadducees come down from the question and they start getting into a dispute with the Pharisees who I'm sure have been going, Amen, Jesus! That's the answer! Brilliant answer! Actually, there's a second part to the answer I need to cover. It's important. Jesus goes to the five books. Notice his wisdom. He doesn't start quoting from the books they don't believe in. He goes to a book that Moses wrote in Exodus. And he says, remember the burning bush. Remember what God says to Moses. God says to Moses, Abraham's been dead for a long time. Uh, Isaac's been dead for a long time. Jacob's been dead for a long time. But in the burning bush, God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Now, Jesus is showing us that this goes further than just he was at one stage their God while they were alive. He is saying they are alive. What a wonderful thought to those who are dead in Christ. There's people who've passed away in the last two years in this church, funerals that we've done, but I know they trust in Jesus. They're more alive than you or me. Every day I die a little more. A little bit more gray comes into this beard. A little more wrinkles comes into this face. Gravity starts to play more of a role. And there are people who are in Jesus' presence right now. They're not uh, dead. They're alive and they're waiting for you and me to join them. We're the ones who are a little bit on the slow uptake over here. And Jesus is saying, Abraham is alive. Isaac is alive. Jacob is alive. God is the God of the living, not the dead. What an encouragement. But I want to pause on this phrase. You do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. I really felt that when I was preparing this, that the Lord was speaking to us as a church. Do you know the scriptures? The Sadducees are in trouble because they, they're familiar with five books really well, but they don't really understand the scriptures. And they don't understand the power of God. Those two things go together. We started reading the Bible, about 50 of us, in a specific plan on the 1st of February. So it's the end of February now, we're a month in. It's going well. I'm really enjoying it. But one of the things I said to the team at the start was, we're not reading the Bible to know the Bible. That is a very low goal. We're reading the Bible to know Jesus. The Spirit can work in your heart when you are hungry and seeking Him and reading Scripture. The Spirit, the power of God works in you to know Jesus more, to love Him more. So I ask you, do you know the Scriptures and do you know the power of God. As you're reading those scriptures, He helps you. It's amazing. I baptized someone last year, new believer. Never read his Bible. He joins the Bible reading plan on the 1st of February, and I bite my nails a little bit, because it's not the kind of thing you, you start on. I've, I'm 40 years old. I've been following Jesus for about 26 years. I'm starting now. I'm ready. This poor guy got baptized last year, hardly read his Bible, and he's going to start reading four chapters a day for the rest of the, the year. And I had coffee with him on Monday. And I said to him, how's it going? And he said, Mark, I wake up in the morning, 5.30, I get a cup of coffee, and then I pray. And I say, Lord, help me. Help me understand your word. 
Do you think God's going to answer that prayer? I do. He's praying to the Spirit to help him understand God's Word. Do you know the Scriptures? And do you know the power that is in them? We want to be a church strong in the Word and strong in the Spirit. Our prayer for you as elders is that you would fall more and more in love with Jesus. That you would be strong in His Word and strong in His power. I have to move on. The third question. We've had two very insincere questions so far. The Sadducees are not interested in Jesus' answer. And neither are the Pharisees or the Herodians. But Jesus has still taken two very insincere questions and turned them into wonderful opportunities for you and me to learn more about Him and to be more hungry for Him. Now it's interesting because amongst the audience is a man who is in a different place to the ones that have opposed Jesus so far. He sees how well Jesus has answered insincere questions and he decides to ask a sincere question. He asks Jesus, what is the most important part of the law? This is a very important question. Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answers him and he says, Here, O Israel, here the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he gives a second commandment. He was only asked for one, but he gives two. And the second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I need to be, get onto the right page here. What the scribe says in response to this answer is quite unusual, and that's how I know he's sincere. And those of you who know your Bibles well, I want to mention something that might be bugging you. In Matthew, um, Matthew recounts the same story, but Matthew says that the scribe asks this question to test Jesus. So Matthew, it sounds like he's coming from a negative space. And I think he is testing Jesus. But just because he's testing him doesn't mean the question is any less sincere. Because in his answer, he says something very unusual for a scribe. He agrees with Jesus. He says, Jesus, you are right. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, is better than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And that's unusual for a scribe to say, because they believe that it was equal. It was equated. You would say, yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, but also you have to do all of the sacrifices. They would have put it on an equal footing. This man reads scripture and sees something different. And he says it out loud. And he says, this part that you've spoken about Jesus, you're right. It's better than all the rest put together. And he understands something that many religious people miss. He understands that obedience is better than sacrifice. When God uh, gives a command to Saul in the Old Testament, he says, go into the city, uh, the village, and wipe it out. Destroy everything. And Saul decides to, um, after he's victorious, keep a lot of the cattle and a lot of the, um, the goods, 
And then to make up for his disobedience, he takes some of them and he sacrifices them to God. Okay, God, I'm going to sacrifice it to you. And Samuel gets upset with him. Samuel says to him, what have you done? And Saul's going, no, I'm, I'm sacrificing to God. And Samuel says, no, you're not being obedient. You're not listening to what God told you to do. And this is, are you hearing me here, people? Because we do this. To live in disobedience and then to feel guilty about it and to try and make up for it through sacrifices is a common human problem. It's like the, the husband who's in adultery who feels really bad about it and increases his tithes to the church and starts buying even more lavish gifts for his wife, trying to make up for the guilt he feels in his heart through good acts. And I want to say to you, are you doing something good to make up for something bad? It is better to be obedient than to sacrifice. And this man understands that. Sacrifices are meaningless if the heart isn't there to obey. You've got to bring your heart into alignment with God's word. You've got to trust and obey him. My daughter walked into the room the other day singing a song that went like this, and I apologize. I'm special, I'm special. Jesus loves me. I'm special, I'm special. Jesus loves me. And like, my ears hurt a little bit because... I don't know if she doesn't sing very well, if the song's not good. I appreciate the truth, and I think she's picked it up from, I hope she hasn't picked it up from Sunday school, but I think she's picked it up from school. And I appreciate that the school's trying to teach my child that God loves them, and he does. But do you know what I feel as a parent quite strongly? That I'm meant to show Olivia that what it looks like to love God. We grow up in a Christian society where most people, whether they believe in God or not, understand that God loves them. And the result of that kind of society where all you care about is the fact that God loves me is I can live however I want and I expect the God that loves me to forgive me and accept my wayward behavior. How well are we doing at what Jesus is saying here? What's the most important commandment? That God loves you? No. It's that you love God with all of your heart. I'm not too interested in Livy knowing that God loves her if that's as far as it goes. What I'm interested in is, Livy, do you know that you are to love God? What really matters is that we love God with all that we have and love others as ourselves. Even there, there's a unique difference I want to highlight. Do you hear the limit? There is a limit. It's a high limit, but there's a limit on loving others. You only need to love others as much as you love yourself. Most people love themselves pretty well. You look after yourself. You make sure you eat. You make sure you're clothed. You like your comfort. When things are uncomfortable, you're pretty good at getting out of those situations to find comfort. We've got a lot of people trying to leave an uncomfortable country at the moment to go and find comfort. They're looking after themselves. I don't know if they're asking God what he thinks about that. And we are to love others the way that we love ourselves, but it's limited to that. Do you hear what God's saying about how you love him, though? Above that, love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. There is no limit to how far that love is meant to go. How do you love God like this? 
How do I teach little Livy to love God like that, with a higher form of love than she even has for herself? It's helpful to look at the original language of the word. This word here that Jesus uses is agapeo. And this is what it means. It means to love unconditionally, sacrificially, as God himself loves sinful men the way he loves his son. Before you answer the question, if I ask you, do you love God? You go, oh, yeah, I do. Hear that again. Jesus is saying that you are to love God unconditionally, sacrificially, as God himself loves sinful men the way he loves his son. Is this even possible for the human heart? And the answer is yes, but only through the Spirit. It is impossible for the sinful, self-centered heart, but for the regenerate heart, it is possible through the Spirit. Look at what, uh, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right, Wust says. He says, the word of love is agapeo, which speaks of the Holy Spirit-generated love in the heart of the yielded saint. A divine love which is due God from his creatures, not phileo, which speaks merely of a non-ethical fondness. The amount of people I hear saying they love Jesus, but their lives don't match up to it, tells me that you like Jesus a lot. You like his teachings. You think he's a good guy. You might use the word love. But the love God is looking for is a love that can only come from his spirit. So it can't happen in the heart of any unbeliever. But in the heart of a regenerate person, you've decided to put your trust in Jesus. The Holy Spirit has come into your heart. Now you are also yielding your heart to Christ. We don't always do that. That means you're surrendering your heart to Christ to live for Him. The Holy Spirit comes in and He starts to stir love up in you for God. It can only come from Him. And you fall more in love with God. You want to give more of your all to Him. It's something that comes from the Spirit. And it can grow, it can be quenched, but that's where it comes from. If Livy starts to grasp that she doesn't love God and can't without his help, she has a chance to surrender her heart and receive the Holy Spirit who grows us into maturity so that we will love God with all of our hearts. It's not enough to know God loves you. Do you love him? And Jesus says something very interesting to the scrub in my last minute. You are not far from the kingdom. It's a compliment when you compare the scribe to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They are far away, very far. This guy who can read God's word and see something real in God's word that is true, Jesus can discern and say to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But I want to warn you, this isn't just a compliment. It's a call. He's calling him. He is not in the kingdom. If he dies that day, he is not in. It's not enough to be not far from the kingdom of God. Again, when I was preparing, I felt the Lord say, Mark, there's people in that room who are not far from the kingdom of God. Don't be satisfied with that. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. May we never rest until we are inside the kingdom of God till we have truly repented, really believed, and been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. If we rest satisfied with being not far from the kingdom of God, we shall find at last that we are shut out forevermore.
It is possible to be very religious, very sincere, and come really close, where you understand a lot of Scripture even and what it means, but to not be in. And the last thing, the question that Jesus asks, the real question, Jesus says, how can it be that the son of David, as Rochelle was speaking about earlier, coming from the Davidic line, Jesus is from the lineage of David. He is his great, 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 and I haven't worked it out, son. How is it possible that someone from David's line, a son of his, David will call God? And in Psalm 110, we don't have time to get into this, David says, Everyone knew it was a messianic psalm. The Pharisees accepted it as a messianic psalm. The religious teachers of the day understood it as a messianic psalm. They knew David was speaking about the coming Messiah, his son, who was going to come and save Israel. But what they didn't understand, and Jesus asks them, he's not doing it to trap them, he doesn't want to trick them, he's pointing the person who's not far from the kingdom of God to the answer. And he says, how is it possible that David says to his son, you are my God? And the phrase is, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And the Hebrew words are, Yahweh said to Adonai. The Father said to the Son, sit at my right hand. And David calls him Lord, God. How is it possible that his Son is also his God? And the answer is standing in front of them. Jesus, fully man, from the Davidic lineage, as was prophesied, also fully God. And how do you enter the kingdom? Remember, that's who he's helping now. You're not far from the kingdom. You understand a lot. But can you answer this question? Do you see that I am God? I'm not just the Messiah. I'm not just here to save Israel politically. I am here that you can surrender your whole life to render unto God what is God's. Surrender everything you have to me. When you do that, you are in. And that's what we see in the final part with the lady. We see this widow evidencing her faith by giving everything she has, even though it's so little. And Jesus sees that action and discerns faith in her heart and says, he's comparing her to the rest that have come before. Be like her. There's real faith there. There's real surrender there. Don't just be intellectual. Don't come with clever answers. Don't come knowing a lot of stuff over here. Are you ready to surrender your whole heart to Christ? To live for Him? To render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's? To love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, and strength? To have that evidenced through actions like the widow who gives everything she has? Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word this morning, and I'm aware that your spirit speaks to each one of us, as we close the meeting, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would stir hearts this morning. Save us from intellectual pride. Save us from religious behavior. Lord, may we come to you today as the widow did, as someone who trusted in you and obeyed. Why did she give two coins? She could have given one. 
She trusted you, Lord. She's not living for this lifetime. She's living for eternity. She trusts in the resurrection. She's giving all of herself to you. She loves you with all of her heart because of a work that is happening inside of her by your spirit. If there's anyone in this room today who feels that they may just be not far from the kingdom, you can enter in when you choose to surrender your heart to Christ, to yield your life to him, to give up your life for him. It it can happen right now as we pray. And Father, help us who have known you a long time to love you with all of our hearts. Lord, I pray that that spirit inside of us would stir a love for you that is so deep and intimate, that we would seek you, Lord, all of our days, that we would grow in maturity, grow closer to you, that we would be strong in word and in spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So the end of the service. Um, it is rainy outside, but we've still got a lovely tent. That's why it's there. Going to have a cup of coffee, invite you for fellowship. If you want to chat about something with me or one of the elders, you can come up to the front. And don't forget Breath of Life. Uh, there's a table at the back. I think, are they going to come speak to you, Michelle? Okay. If you're interested in what Breath of Life was sharing, please go and have a chat to them. And uh, we'll see you guys next week.